Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the 15th installment of Painting the Corners with Anton Schindler, brought to you by 90.5 KCSU. In last week's episode, we talked all about the man with a million nicknames, Babe Ruth, and just about scratched the surface on why he's arguably the best baseball player of all time. But, you see, Babe Ruth was never really an underdog, and neither was any team that he played for really, for that matter. But today, we're going to be talking about a bit of an underdog story that has to do with an underdog team chock full of washed up talent and young players that were just getting their baseball careers started. Today, we'll be talking about the somewhat of an anomaly that was the 2005 Chicago White Sox. Plus, I felt that it was necessary to make a podcast on the other Chicago team since I did one on the Cubs, so... Well, here you go. Leading up to that faithful 2005 season, the Chicago White Sox were pretty much consistently finishing in second place, either behind the Indians or the Twins, and always just missing the playoffs and a possible wildcard berth by a few games. Since 1995, the White Sox had only made the playoffs once, despite being above 500 in five of the ten seasons leading up to that faithful 2005 season. The White Sox were so close to being a very good baseball team, but they just needed that one thing to help them push them into the playoffs. Not only that, but the White Sox hadn't made it to the World Series in 88 years. The White Sox already had a lot of talent as well. I mean, as they continued to grow bigger and just stronger teams in general. They had Frank Thomas, who was the soon-to-be Hall of Famer, that was really in the prime of his career, starting to end, mostly in the DH spot, occasionally taking first base duties if there was an off day somewhere. Leading up to the 2005 season, Frank Thomas was on season 16 with the White Sox, and his age was starting to show a little bit. In 2005, Thomas had his worst hitting season with the Sox, hitting 219 with just 12 home runs that season. But The White Sox kept him around for the same reason that, well, really any team keeps old talent or acquires seasoned veterans, as they say. Well, for their experience. You see, Frank Thomas was there for the White Sox playoff push in 1993 and 2000. Not only that, but he was one of the best hitters in the league, and he could probably help some of the younger players that were coming through the system with their consistency up at the plate. Some other talent that came back to the team came in the form of Mike Burley, Paul Canerco, and Juan Uribe. To kick off the rest of the changes, however, the White Sox made some offseason moves in order to hopefully shake things up a little bit. The first notable one was getting rid of Maglio Ordonez, a four-time All-Star and a two-time Silver Slugger with the White Sox, who was taking up quite a bit of cap space. In 2004, he was making about $14 million at the age of 30. Now, although his bat was consistent, hitting around 300 every season, Ordonez visited the injured list a few times, and when his contract ran out, he just became too expensive to resign. A.J. Przinski, although hated by most White Sox fans due to his time with the Twins, joined the team as well. 32-year-old Dustin Hermanson joined the team and was converted into a closer after having little success with his previous teams as a starting pitcher. 
Another move came with a player named Carlos Lee, who was a bit of a slugger in his time with the White Sox. Lee had such great potential, in fact, that when he was traded to the Milwaukee Brewers on December 13th, 2004, a few pretty high-profile players came the Sox way. First off, Scott Pesednik. Since Pesednik came to the majors in 2001, he proved to have a really consistent bat as he collected over 150 hits per season with the Brewers and cemented himself as a speed threat on the bases. In 2004, Pesednik stole 70 bases, which led the major leagues. The other player that came in that trade was Luis Vizcaino, a right-hander that had a killer slider that he often mixed with a hard four-seam fastball and a really good splitter. And that brings me to something that is very interesting about the Chicago White Sox team. Their pitching leading up to the 2005 season was decent. Perfectly decent. We see it so much nowadays that a strong pitching rotation wins ballgames and ultimately championships. The White Sox pitching rotation, on the other hand, wasn't exactly taking the league by storm. You see, all of the pitchers on this team had between a 3.12-ish ERA to about a 3.61 ERA, with the exception of Orlando Hernandez, who had a 5.12 ERA, but he pitched less games and everything like that too. The important thing to point out there, however, is that all of them had a winning record. Mark Burley led these pitchers as the only lefty in the rotation, winning 16 games and only losing 8. But what he and all of the pitchers that were in the rotation and in the bullpen were good at was working out of trouble. They were really good at letting the offense do all of the damage very early in the game and then keeping the lead. The regular season came around and it was starting to look like everyone, not just one or two players, was doing their part to help the team win. The White Sox started off the season so hot, in fact, that they won 26 of their first 34 games of the season with the help of two eight-game winning streaks, which put the White Sox at the top of the division, a place that they would hold until they won it, going up six games ahead of the Cleveland Indians by the end of the season. The team was full of impressive stories, including the four players that would get sent to the MLB All-Star game that year. Mark Burley, who actually started off the season very well, started the All-Star game, pitched two innings and gave up three hits and no runs. John Garland pitched in that game as well, and Paul Canerco and Scott Pesednik got a chance to hit too. You have to imagine the hype in the south side of Chicago in 2005 with such a talented team winning more games than any other team in the majors up to that point, and having four of their stars in the All-Star game as well. And not to mention the possibility of going back to a World Series for the first time in 88 years. I mean, that must have been absolutely unreal. After the All-Star break, the White Sox continued to dominate. To be fair, they had a bit harder of a time in the second half, only winning 42 of their final 76 games, <laughs> but it was still plenty to push them to an American League best 99 wins, four games above the second place Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. Some huge performances that came out of this season came from Dustin Hermanson, who had a career best 2.04 ERA, a full point better than he had ever pitched, as well as a 40 home run season from Paul Canerco, a 31 home run season for the 31-year-old Jermaine Dye, as well as 
3.00 ERAs pretty much across the board for each one of the starters, again, led by, by Mark Burley. And that's really the point that I'm trying to drive at. Every single one of the players on this roster had such a huge part to do with the success of the overall team. Yes, there are some impressive individual stats, but going through each row of data for each of these players, I mean, everyone played so consistently, and everyone did well when it mattered. I mean, the team chemistry for this team was something of a dream. The Chicago White Sox were set up to face the Boston Red Sox in the American League Division Series just a year after those Boston Red Sox ended their huge World Series drought. The Red Sox went into the series with a similar squad to the one that they had in 2004, but they were no match for Ozzie Gillen, who was the White Sox manager at the time, and his White Sox. In Game 1 of the ALDS, Jose Contreras got the ball and threw a two-run gem as the White Sox scored 14 runs in just about five innings. <laughs> A.J. Przinsky, Paul Canerco, Juan Uribe, and Scott Pesednik all had home runs in that game as they quickly took Game 1 without much of an effort. Game 2 was a little bit closer as the Red Sox scored two runs in the first and two runs in the third inning, but the White Sox pulled it out thanks to a five-run fifth inning that was led by their Japanese product, Tadahito Aguchi. Game 3 followed a similar suit as the White Sox scored two in the third, two in the sixth, and one in the ninth. The White Sox really seemed unstoppable as they made pretty quick work of the reigning World Series champs. On to the American League Championship we go as the White Sox were up against their main American League rival that year, the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, who, in Game 1, gave the White Sox their one and only loss of the 2005 playoffs. The quick pitching of Paul Bird held the White Sox to just two runs through six innings before the AL save leader that year, Francisco Rodriguez, shut them down in Game 1. When it came to Game 2, however, Jared Washburn kept the White Sox at one run for the majority of the game, but it was Mark Burley's time to shine. Burley threw all nine innings in that game, giving up one run on five hits, but it was some late-game heroics that broke the tie in the bottom of the ninth inning that gave the White Sox Game 2. It all started with two outs in the inning. A.J. Przinsky had just swung at a strike three in the dirt that was, well, technically dropped at the plate. Thinking that it was caught, the entire Angels team started to walk off the field in order to get ready for the next inning. Przinsky sprinted to first, saying, ah, what can I lose? And after review, he was called safe thanks to the drop third strike rule, since the umpire never signaled a strikeout. Pablo Azuna replaced Brzezinski at first as their speed option and stole second base. Joe Creed then hit a double down the third base line, scoring Azuna and securing the win. After this rather controversial call, the series started to slide the way of the White Sox. Game 3, 4, and 5 all ended with the White Sox outscoring the Angels by three runs or more, and for the first time since 1959, they were back in the World Series against the Houston Astros. Well, back when the Houston Astros were still in the National League, mind you. In Game 1 of the 2005 World Series, brilliant pitching by Jose Contreras, Neil Kotz, and Bobby Jenks, who, by the way, was in his rookie season, if you can imagine that, held the Astros to just three runs 
and didn't allow them to score past the third inning. Game two, however, was a bit more of a nail-biter, as the Astros tied the White Sox in the top of the ninth inning when Bobby Jenks gave up a two-run single. But it was Scott Pesednik that hit the walk-off shot to save game two for the White Sox. Game three was not much different as it took five hours and 41 minutes and 14 innings to decide it. Jeff Blum, the last pinch hitter of the game, was the one to put the White Sox ahead as he hit a line drive home run to the right field seats off of Ezekiel Estacio. Now, you would think, right, after having two World Series games and in possibly the most stressful and really just anxiety-filled ways, <laughs> Game 4 might be a little bit more normal, a little bit more of what we're used to. But, as you may have guessed, it was anything but. Once again, Freddie Garcia, who, by the way, was 3-0 in the postseason, got the call for the White Sox. And he was the right man for the job. Garcia threw the game of his life, pitching 7 innings, giving up just 4 hits, and striking out 7 Astros. A single up the middle by Jermaine Dye scored Willie Harris, who singled himself as he pinch hit for Garcia. This single would give the White Sox the lead in the 8th, and it would be the only run scored in Game 4 of this 2005 World Series. The two teams combined were 1 for 19, <laughs> with runners in scoring position, the Astros having 11 of those stranded base runners, which, for any game, especially a World Series, is is not good. It all came down to Bobby Jenks once again to close it out in the ninth inning and get the White Sox their first World Series win in 88 years. After a base hit and a runner on second base, Orlando Palmero came up to bat for the pitcher. On a 1-2 count, Palmero grounded up the middle to Juan Uribe, who flipped it over to first and just barely got the out. And... For the first time in 88 years, it was time to celebrate in the south side of Chicago. The 2005 White Sox managed to pull possibly one of the biggest underdog stories of all time, thanks to old talent, new talent, and maybe some slightly risky trades throughout the preseason, and really just a lot of risky stuff throughout the regular season and postseason as well. But the big thing that I'm trying to get at here is that they absolutely steamrolled their way through anything that really stood in their way to one of the most unprecedented seasons you'll ever hear. Now, I strongly urge you to go onto YouTube because pretty much this entire run that we've talked about today is on it, like the full games are on it. And it's really incredible to see this team adapt and overcome and push through literally everything that got in its way. For this episode, a lot of the research that I did was really just watching these games, you know, these three, four hour games, and just seeing how these guys were really good with each other, how the team chemistry was just awesome, how they never gave up and just kept pushing to, well, a World Series win. And I mean, with the young talent and the older talent that the White Sox have now, I mean, who knows? Maybe they'll do it again in a really similar way very, very soon. Thank you for listening.